We are talking about encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Our text for today comes from Luke chapter 4, and I'll be reading beginning with verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And then he said to him, to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. So, I ask you a question. What in life has met your expectations? What in life has met your expectations? Um, has school met your expectations? How about those of you who are new to the university? A couple of weeks, has it, has it met your expectations so far? Um, what about adulthood? Has adulthood met your expectations? I thought that adulthood meant getting to do whatever you want. I would lie in bed at night as a child and hear my parents watching Perry Mason, and I thought, oh, that must be the life. <laughs> Those of us who are at work, does work meet your expectations, or is that too sour a subject to bring up at a sacred moment like this? When was the last time you had a vacation that met your expectations? When was the last time you had a vacation? Those of you who are married, oh, let's not go there. Parenthood, don't even get us started, okay? Aging, well, I can tell you that some of the things I've feared have, have been a part of that. Uh, how about your most recent meal? Did it meet your expectations or even last night's sleep? Let's just begin on a profound note of disappointment, shall we? Let's kind of wallow in it for a moment. Let's recognize that mostly things do not meet our expectations. And sometimes our expectations get in the way of the truth to our detriment. When, our ex when we experience disappointments, sometimes we don't see the real thing that is going on that we ought to celebrate. 
Well, in what respect this encounter that Jesus has with the people of his hometown in his synagogue is a story about expectations. It's a story about how God meets expectations and how he doesn't meet our expectations. And how by faith we say that is a very good thing. You see, from God's promises, we should expect that God is restoring his world, that he is making it right, that he is making it conform to his intention, to his goodness, to his love, to his righteousness. And indeed, this text tells us that he is, but not in the way that we would expect. God is restoring his world in a way that you and I would not respect or expect. And maybe we don't respect it as well, but the, but the key word is expect there. So let's, let's think together about how this, this text unfolds this idea. And I think it's something that's present not just in this text, but it's something that we grapple with in the entire story of Scripture. And we grapple with in the experience that we have daily as, as God's people. As the text begins, we see that God is restoring his world through someone you wouldn't expect. Through someone you wouldn't expect. Jesus begins his synagogue teaching with texts from the book of Isaiah that were well known to his hearers because they, they contained important promises of the coming of God's kingdom. That is, God's reign over the world, God's restoration of his righteousness and his peace coming through the agency of God's promised king. To unpack that, God says, I'm going to take my world back, and I'm going to send my king who is going to take my world for me, and it's going to be the kind of world that is going to bring the kind of thing that you read about here in these texts that Jesus quote, which uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 58, verse 6, when he says, the Spirit of God uh, has anointed me, is upon me and I have been anointed. This is a way of saying I am God's true prophet and I am God's true king, the anointed one. And so I come to bring liberation to the weak and to the oppressed. If life has treated you wrong, if your life has been hard, if it has been filled with disappointment and hardship and suffering, I come for you. And when Jesus says, as he does, that he is uh, uh, announcing the year of the Lord's favor, he's drawing on the image of the year of Jubilee, part of the law of Moses that told Israel every 50 years, just have an annual festival, a festival of forgiveness and, and generosity and, and, and feasting and celebration of God's goodness, which sounds great until you realize they probably never actually did it. Because when you tell somebody, take a whole year off, they'd say, I can't afford to do that. It's a tremendous act of faith. And so, so that promise had, had laid, lay there without, without being realized. And Jesus says, I come to bring that kind of blessing on God's people. Well, it's going to take an impressive individual to do that kind of thing, isn't it? To, to, to bring about that level of change uh, in the world. It's going to, as we think about Israel's history, we would imagine that the people there were thinking, this is going to take someone like David times 10 with that kind of power. This is going to take someone with the wisdom of Solomon times 10. There are other powers to overcome. There are people to persuade. It, and it is no easy thing to give sight to the blind. That isn't something that just happens instantly. 
And then Jesus surprises everyone by saying he is the one who will do this thing. And now you have a dilemma if you are in the audience because the people of Nazareth know Jesus. If I may use the vernacular, he's their homie. And I use the vernacular knowing it sounds ridiculous on my lips. Okay. They went to middle school with this guy. Okay. They remember when his voice cracked. They know what he is, is like. He is just another person like them. They, he grew up among them a regular guy. There's a, there's a passage here. Um, I don't like to flash my credentials, but I do have a PhD in New Testament studies. Um, and so from time to time, I don't do this often, but I think the translators got it a little wrong here where it says they spoke well of him. It's more like they, they, they testified about him. What you hear them saying is, that's Joseph's son. This is just one of us. Now, the interesting thing in the Gospel of Luke is you know better if you've been reading this book because you go back to chapter 1 and you realize Mary said, well, how is this going to be seeing I don't have a husband? And, and the angel Gabriel says, you'll conceive by the Holy Spirit. And then we read later when Luke is giving Jesus genealogy, he says, no, Jesus was the son, as people thought, of Joseph. So when they say, isn't this Joseph's son, they're wrong by at least half. They don't really understand what's going on. And for heaven's sake, how could they? Because if Mary had gone around saying, oh, it's a virgin conception, everybody would have gone, oh, sure, of course, absolutely, we believe you. Okay, this is just, this is just too much to take in any given moment. So they're responding out of their own context, out of the ordinariness of what they know. And they can't believe, they marvel that this guy would say such an audacious thing. So Jesus acknowledges this. He says, you want me to prove this, don't you? And he says, well, I'm not in the proving it business. You're just going to have to watch and see what happens. Regular people don't do this kind of thing. The people around Jesus are saying, remember who you are, buddy. Just, just remember who you are, where you come from, where you live. We know you. This ain't happening. Now, this is just one of the many, many outrageous, audacious, over-the-top claims that Jesus makes in Luke's gospel, in all of the gospels in the New Testament. Jesus claims authority to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins. Jesus claims authority to send God's Holy Spirit, and only God can send his Holy Spirit. Jesus claims authority over disease and the forces of nature and evil spirits and death and who's the only one who can do those kinds of things. Jesus asserts authority to interpret God's law and to assert God's will. And he doesn't argue it, he just says it. And who can do that? In short, Jesus says, this is God's kingdom and I am the king. And I have the status to do that. This is, you know, people talk about what's the essence of Jesus' message. This is it. The essence of Jesus' message is about Jesus. And it's about this crazy, outrageous claim that he makes. Yet, he is not the kind of person anyone expected to assume such a role. He was as ordinary as an old pair of shoes. He was, to those who knew him best, just a guy. And this is the climax of the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the story of God working among and through very ordinary people, weak people, poor people, 
Jesus is, ironically enough, where we see that most clearly. All the power and authority of God the Creator is found in him, a poor kid from a little farming town in the middle of nowhere. Now, can we keep these two realities together? Many people reject Jesus as king because it's so hard to believe that an ordinary person could at the same time be so extraordinary, could be, as we Christians confess him to be, God in the flesh. Now, others of us, uh, accustomed to the Christian faith, perhaps we revere Jesus as divine to the point that we forget that he was indeed human, just as human and ordinary as any of us, every bit like you and me. But you see, this is the thing. There is no other Jesus that we can deal with. There is no other Jesus whom we can, can talk about, that we can think about, that we can confront or embrace. There is no way to construct him or to explain him or to do justice to the data of the texts which have come to us and the witnesses who first carried his message, except to understand him as this paradox, the power of God present in human weakness, the person of God present in an ordinary man. And in this, God is doing this amazing and wonderful thing. If you're considering the claims of Christianity, I urge you to first and foremost focus on Jesus. Read his story. Consider how he presents himself. And contemplate how this paradox of divinity and humanity fully together address the deepest needs and longings as we have sung of your human condition. If you are a follower of Jesus, check yourself. Remind yourself of his lowliness, his ordinariness, his full humanity, and let that reality guide you even as you are confident of his divine power as you live in your own ordinariness. Now, secondly, we, we see more here because God is also restoring his world for people you wouldn't expect, for people you wouldn't expect. Jesus reminded the people of his hometown that God extends his grace to all kinds of people, not just to people like them. Jesus told two stories here uh, about the prophets Elijah and Elisha, who in the course of, of their careers in the books of Kings uh, encountered uh, people who were not just members of the nation of Israel, but who lived outside of Israel, who were regarded not just as, you know, neighbors, but really as, as enemies, and, and were, were thought of as alienated from God's grace and from God's goodness. Yet, through Elijah, God gave, gave life to, to the widow and her son in the midst of, of famine. To, um, to Naaman, the Syrian general and a, an oppressor, a, a military aggressor, through the prophet Elisha, God gave him grace in cleansing from his condition as a leper. God had called Israel as his people, but he did this first on the way to announcing the blessing of all people. If the father of Israel, Abraham, was told, by you, I will bless all the families of the earth. The God who created the earth isn't going to just let this thing go by. He is calling all people through Jesus to belong to him, and Jesus is now bringing that promise to its fulfillment. 
even though we revert into this kind of thinking, we need to remember God's kingdom isn't for the privileged. In fact, it is for the opposite. The moment we begin thinking that we're chosen because we're choice, we have forsaken the, the true message of the Bible. God is the God who lifts up the lowly and brings down the proud. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Mary breaks into song, and this is the, the way that she puts it. God is reversing everything. Jesus is going to say, I didn't come for righteous people. They don't need a doctor. I came for sinners. He puts tax collectors and, and those who are publicly known as sinners in the front of the line for what he is doing. And he's, you know, we say, well, what about the 12? They're good guys. No, they're not. Read the story carefully. They're knuckleheads. I mean, seriously, every time I think I'm a knucklehead, I read the Bible and I see I've got company. You know? This is, this is how God does his thing. If we listen to Jesus, well, we need to consider how we deal with our own privilege in whatever way that manifests itself. We do this not because it's politically correct. God was lifting up the lowly and bringing down the proud long before we talked about political correctness. Okay? We're doing it because God calls us to surrender our pretenses that we're powerful or important. It's a myth. It's a lie that we tell to ourselves that sometimes is reinforced by the society around us, and it's poison. It keeps us from God. And in turn, we need to recognize that power and privilege are a subtle, tricky business. Think about how this works for Jesus' audience. Jesus' audience did not see themselves as powerful. First of all, they were Jewish in, in a world dominated by the Romans and, and, and Greek culture. They were on the outside of that. They were seen as the oddballs of the Mediterranean world. Their nation was small, it was weak, it was poor, it was insignificant. And within that, the people of Nazareth were particularly small, weak, poor, and insignificant. They were the bottom of the bottom, but they could claim to be God's chosen. That was where they found their privilege. Now Jesus is saying, not even that. It's for everybody, including the people that you have seen on the outs. To be lifted up, you've got to become lowly, no matter who you are. And this is how salvation in Jesus transforms our relationships and behavior with other people. Forgiven, we have to forgive. As lowly people who have been lifted up, we have to lift up others. Having received the most generous of gifts, we have to give generously. Having been served by Christ our King, we have to serve others with the same kind of love. It's the most powerful stuff in the world. Now, as a third point... We see that God is restoring his world by means you wouldn't expect. The people of Jesus' hometown were so incensed by his words, by the audacious claim that he was making and by his challenge of their own tenuous sense of, of privilege that they attempt to put him to death by, by ritual stoning. There's a kind of code here. If you're throwing somebody off a cliff in, in ancient Judaism, the next thing you're going to do is drop a bunch of stones on them, just so you know. Okay, that's, that's the procedure. Uh, and you do this not just as, a, as a, a way of getting even. It's a way of saying you are no longer part of God's people. You no longer belong to our nation. You, you are under, under a curse of God in this circumstance. This is not the only instance in the story of Jesus in which people attempt to kill him. 
Jesus' words and mighty deeds do not lead to universal recognition and submission the way that some of Hollywood's depictions of the life of Jesus would, uh, would suggest. You know how that is. Jesus always looks different from other people, taller, skinnier, better hair, and a penetrating stare that just melts people down to nothing. Okay. Greatest story ever told. Uh, just thinking about John Wayne as the centurion in that movie, that was just a real moment if you've ever seen it. But, uh, you know, Roman centurion with a Texas accent. It was quite something. <laughs> well, that's not the Jesus of, of the Bible. Uh, people don't always listen to him. They don't always submit to him. Yet, in this instance, no one can harm him. Nothing, nothing happens to him. Now, Luke doesn't really comment on this. He doesn't tell us why it happened or how it happened. But we understand something of what's going on. Okay? You'll remember from our discussion of the temptation of Jesus that, that Satan kind of puts this out to him. He says, take a flying leap and God will catch you. And that will be impressive. He's promised. Jesus says, I don't put God to the test. I'm not going to force his hand. But God is protecting him. The Father is protecting the Son in this instance. And so Jesus continues to trust the Father throughout. And he trusts the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says to him, Father, take this cup from me, referring to the death that he would suffer the next day on the cross, a death that he had been talking about in Luke's gospel since chapter 9. You're not even halfway through the book. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, boys, I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I will be crucified. Three days later, I will arise. And they don't get it at all. They're clueless about this because they're knuckleheads. And so Jesus, the night before his death, having said to his disciples, take this bread, which is my body, and this cup, which is my blood, and that's pretty direct. He's now praying, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus does what you and I have always struggled to do, what Israel always struggled to do, what our first parents struggled to do, and we've all failed to do, and that is put our complete trust and hope in the care of God. Jesus does this. He trusts the Father's goodness in every instance, as he says, not my will, but yours be done. Now, why does someone with mighty divine power not protect himself? Why does God the Father protect him repeatedly, but not protect him in the end? You see now how this story at the beginning of Luke's gospel is foreshadowing the end of Luke's gospel and the crucifixion. You see how it's kind of putting things in line so we can understand and appreciate what happens there. Jesus' death is not yet another tragedy that happens to a good person. It is his conscious submission to the will of the Father, a Father who we can now say knows what it is to lose a child for us, for us. And God gives him his life back again in triumph, lifting up the lowly. You can't make this stuff up. You just can't. In his death, Jesus submitted fully to God the Father. 
unlike you, me, Israel, Adam, Eve, every other human ever. He defeated death and the devil. He brought forgiveness and powerful to his guilty, weak people. He inaugurated God's promised reign. He began the process by which God liberates the captives, brings sight to the blind, restores his will to all of creation, calls all the nations to belong to him. And so this thing that looks at the least like God's reign in the world is the thing that begins the restoration of God's reign in the world. Let me leave you with a couple of questions. The first one is this. Can we see the glory of God in the ordinary? One of the things that's great about being new is you can tell all your stories and people haven't heard them before. So here's one of mine. Uh, Tammy and I met at a little Christian college that we went to together in Cincinnati and where I ended up teaching for 23 years. Um, one of the people we were in school with is a guy named Rich Mullins. Yeah. Oh, I'm so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like to tell people I played with Rich Mullins. That was because one year I played clarinet in the concert band and he played timpani. So yeah, I was in a band with Rich. Um, Rich, of course, is a celebrated um, Christian songwriter. Um, I think his stuff is going to endure uh, because there's a level of creativity and depth that is there. But this is the story I want to tell myself. Rich was a couple years older than me. Um, he had an interesting academic career that we won't get into. Um, but uh, there were a lot of Friday nights, Saturday nights, when my friends would say to me, hey, Rich is playing over at, and they'd name some funky little basement venue, you know, where there might be coffee served. Uh, you want to go? And I said, uh, no, I got work to do. You know, I've got irregular Greek verbs to memorize. <laughs> things, things of that nature. I really couldn't believe that a guy who was in school with me, who was at this little no-count college, um, and who was just really as odd as Rich was, and sometimes as smelly as Rich was, he was a complicated guy, I couldn't believe that he was going to be anything other than just kind of a flake. And, man, I cherish those songs that he wrote now. And I miss some history. I missed what God was doing in the moment. And I'm grateful for a second chance on that. And so I hope we will understand, just, you know, in, in our midst here, let's face this is a pretty ordinary place that we've got here, right? There are fancier churches. Um, but God is doing extraordinary things among his ordinary people. But that's, that's secondary to this. The important question is, what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to domesticate him, as many do, as an ancient teacher of wisdom? The wisdom, by the way, that we select and shape according to our own preferences. We look down a well thinking that we're looking at Jesus and we see a reflection of ourselves. Are we going to domesticate him or are we going to let his divinity Eclipse the ordinariness of his humanity, leaving him beyond our reach. Now let's see him as the beautiful paradox of incarnation. God become fully human, giving himself selflessly and submissively for people as weak and wicked and ordinary as you and me. And then let's live like that, seeing God's power at work in your weakness, in my weakness, 
in our weakness. And let's celebrate the reign of God. Will you pray with me? God, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for every way in which it shows us your glory in ways that, that transcend what we could imagine, expect, or hope, and which bring us blessing even, even in our most trying moments. Teach us day by day and moment by moment to see that glory around us, to celebrate it in our Lord Jesus and to follow him. And we pray in his name.